0: Hello and welcome. We're listening to EPIC Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson.
1: And this is episode 29, 72-hour kits, preparedness or placebo, an epic debate episode.
0: In this episode, Josh and I will go head to head to unpack the issue of preparedness kits and determine once and for all if the much-toted 72-hour go-bag initiatives hold any water when it comes to actually increasing preparedness.
1: Special thanks to our moderator and referee Adriana Lebedovich who I'm sure will help to keep things from getting too heated.
0: All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast: Current, Relevant, Canadian.
1: To celebrate the end of EP Week 2019 and backed by popular demand is another epic debate.
0: That's right. Now dear listeners, if you have not heard one of our epic debate episodes before, you are in for a treat. It's a chance for Josh and I to blow off some steam and discuss a controversial topic in a fun way. But it's also a really important exercise in general because many of the core assumptions that so many of our plans are built on and disaster dollars are spent on are either extremely old and in need of refreshing uh, or have not really been rigorously debated before.
1: And as a quick disclaimer... Uh, we do definitely acknowledge the seriousness of all the issues we debate, but we ask for your permission to focus on these issues in a fun way to promote learning. Our positions are often decided by the flip of a coin, so don't hold us too closely to uh, uh, our views representing our actual opinions in the debate.
0: Now, Josh and I have been known to get into some pretty hardcore nerd rage sessions from time to time. Uh, so to make sure things don't get too far out of hand, I'd like to introduce our wonderful moderator, Adriana Lebedovich.
2: Thank you. Now, boys, I want a clean debate. No straw man, circular or slippery slope arguments and no blows below the belt. Ready? Ready. Let's get ready. Today we are debating the effectiveness of 72-hour kits. Are they, like is widely believed, a mechanism for improved preparedness or simply a placebo? I'll read the resolution and then we'll begin. Be it resolved that 72-hour kits are an effective preparedness measure for disasters and should continue to be promoted by emergency managers and agencies. Josh, you are arguing against this and Grayson, you are arguing for. We will begin with opening statements. Grayson, you may begin.
0: Thank you very much, Adriana. I'd like to begin by saying that 72-hour kits are a direct reflection of our government's responsibility to its citizens. By promoting the 72-hour kit initiative, governments and agencies are directly saying that we promise that if you can make it through the first 72 hours, we will be there with the resources that we need. And this is a promise that has been expressed in a lot of the the research and the metrics that they hold themselves to. And that's why 72-hour kits are valuable. It's a promise, it's a metric, and it's something to help prepare both our governments and our people. At the base of any disaster, we know that disasters are, are local. And what is more local than the household? Household preparedness is so important and it's a disaster saying that uh you know stuff is only replaceable until it's not you do need some equipment to survive you definitely need water you definitely need food and these are the elements that are in a disaster kit this is based on maslow's hierarchy of needs this is based on basic survival so 72 hour kits are not just a nice to have they are a must-have and they are at the core of preparedness initiatives and that social contract that we have with our governments who are responsible for disaster management.
2: Josh, your opening argument, please.
1: So I'd like to just set this record straight here and let everybody know that 72-hour kits are an outdated intervention without any evidence. It's a a hangover from our uh, Cold War civil defense era, and they should belong in the Civil Defense Museum, Um, seriously, this is a perfect example of something I like to call planning theatre. So in the absence of any good evidence to the contrary, we do something that maybe intuitively makes us feel like we're uh, doing something which is better than nothing, but there's no evidence for the actual uh, public safety messaging or intervention. If you think about it from a, a logical standpoint, who are we most worried about as emergency managers? All of the evidence, the preponderance of data, tells us that we should worry most about the vulnerable people in our communities. Those are people that, uh, at baseline, may not have the resources to um, you know, manage day-to-day, and now we're asking them to stockpile for 72 hours or more, and it's just not realistic. I think, in, if you look at it this way, it's another example of asking the... Uh, people who are the most vulnerable to do something that they they can't do. Just like cooling centers tend to help people who are already resilient, it's the same sort of uh, uh, intervention. There's really no evidence that 72-hour kits make a difference. Um, If you look back through a long line of uh, expert opinion, um, I challenge the other side of the argument to show me one study or one uh, piece of evidence that's not anecdotal that shows that it actually makes a difference in terms of mortality or morbidity. And given the real-world scarcity of resources, uh, I think it's uh, a place where we could look at maybe redirecting a lot of our public education uh, programming and mitigation dollars. Perhaps one of the most important things on that same line of thinking about scarcity is just understanding what scarcity is. Because in Canada, the reality is there's very few disasters that will produce a true scarcity. What happens in the immediate aftermath of a disruption or a major event is a relative scarcity. That means that for a very short amount of time you're going to have a uh, disruption in critical services but nothing that's actually going to get down to the point where things like having you know 72 hour kits are actually going to save lives. Uh, We live in such a resource um, supplied country that uh, Uh, These interventions just don't have any backing behind them.
2: Those arguments seemed pretty kitted out. But let's unpack the issue a little more and see which one of you is prepared and which one will be left holding the bag. I will ask each of you a series of questions, and after each answer, the other will have a chance to rebut. Josh, the first question is for you. Why aren't 72-hour kits a good metric
1: for preparedness? That's a great question. Now... When we're looking at trying to you know measure preparedness, what are we actually getting at there? We're trying to measure resilience and self-sufficiency. And because these are difficult things to actually quantify or measure, uh, lots of authors have gone after the 72-hour kit as a low-hanging fruit for something they can actually count. It's easy to go do a survey and have a self-reported survey and ask people, you know, who has uh, 72-hour kits and who doesn't, and somehow that's going to be a proxy that our um, public education programs or our preparedness efforts are working. I wish it was that easy, but it really isn't. And interestingly enough, there has been some studies who've actually surveyed emergency managers, and the majority of emergency managers themselves don't actually have 72-hour kits. So Grayson, I'm curious if you actually have one uh, in your house. Um, but seriously, the, the lack of evidence is just um, very plain. I mean, there's been several systematic reviews that have been done. Hegel did one in 2018 in the Journal of uh, Public Health and he found no supporting evidence whatsoever uh, to actually show that um, planning kits correlated with uh, actual preparedness efforts. Pickering and O'Sullivan published in PLOS Currents in 2018 as well, a study on grab bags where they reviewed 38 articles looking uh, about the effectiveness of 72-hour kits. And uh, a lot of them tried to use 72-hour kits as a a correlate, um, but they really uh, were poorly done studies, and the authors commented on the lack of useful uh, recommendations that any of these studies could, could truly draw. And finally... If you look at what the definition of preparedness that's used in terms of personal household preparedness, the most common one in the public health literature is the FEMA metric. And that includes a range of things that you can measure. that uh, don't include 72-hour emergency kits. For example, how many households at uh, any given time have half a tank of gas? How many households have access to emergency alerting? How many households are able to turn off their meters or utilities and have the equipment and training to do it? How many households have fire detectors and and two exits? So there's lots of other things that are measurable. I mean, you could even say in a flood zone, how many people have life jackets? I mean, measuring uh, is one thing. We need to actually figure out causality and uh, get some definitive proof that our interventions are actually going to do what we hope they will. So I think it's, a, it's a, a lazy way of trying to do research, um, and it's an easy message that we've been repeating. So it's a nice uh, kind of cute message come Emergency Preparedness Week every year. It's easy. We can just say 72-hour kits, and intuitively it makes sense to us and probably makes sense to the public. But our job is to think deeper, actually follow the evidence, use the science, and make smart recommendations that are actually going to save lives. And I think we need to go beyond 72-hour kits because there just simply is no evidence.
2: Grayson, your rebuttal?
0: Well, I'd like to start by huffing and puffing and blowing your straw man right out of the the water here. Uh, 72-hour kits are an indicator. They are never the only thing that we're looking at. They are an excellent indicator because they are a physical thing that you either have or you do not have. And if you have it, then we can start reading into some of the reasons that you do have it. Was the communication effective? Are you of a socioeconomic status that can afford to start preparing in that way uh, and we can start to have a little bit of a vulnerability map based around this metric and others. So to say that you know 72 hour kits are the only thing that ever gets studied I I disagree with that. I think uh, it is one metric among many and it's probably the best metric however because it is very measurable. Um, It's also really important to get a sense of whether or not your initiatives are successful and if it's a 72-hour kit that is the initiative then having a 72-hour kit is direct proof that that initiative is working so this is a great metric for preparedness and one of the only ones that we can accurately rely on.
2: Grayson, the next question is what is the evidence for 72-hour emergency kits?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked. Josh is of the opinion that there is no evidence to support 72-hour kits. Josh, I challenge you. I don't think you've ever read an after-action report then. Uh, In every after-action report that I have ever seen, uh, individual preparedness was measured and 72-hour kits were always lacking and were cited as a reason that the community was not able to support itself. The other thing you mentioned, Josh, was that somehow, magically, government resources would be there before 72 hours was up. This has not always been the case. If you look at uh, Hurricane Katrina, people were trapped for several days. If you look at uh, the historic ice storms in, in Canada, it was uh, several weeks before definitive resources could be there. It was the 72-hour kits and that, that self-sustainability that really helped with people's survival with that life safety element of disaster management. So the evidence is all around you. uh, And not only are 72 hour kits supported by all of these after action reports, it's also a peace of mind. People with 72 hour kits feel more prepared. There are studies around the perception of preparedness and 72 hour kits are an an indicator of resilience. So there's tons of evidence. And uh, just because you haven't chosen to look at it doesn't mean it's not there. Zing! <laughs> so,
2: uh, oh, Josh, you have a chance to debate this. Go ahead. It's a
1: good thing I'm made of Teflon, Grayson. I won't take your <laughs> your points too seriously. Um, I think. Uh, if you actually take a serious look at the literature, after-action reports are one thing. But unfortunately, we know there's a lot of after-action report templates out there. And I think uh, a lot of authors have been drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm sure they all, always list uh, you know, communications and the need for more ICS training as well in every other um, after-action report. Uh, the point is that these don't necessarily... Um, ascribe causality. And I think association and causality is really important when you're trying to evaluate the evidence. If you look uh, and dig a bit deeper into uh, some of the numbers, I mean, there's a lot of expert opinion out there, um, but uh, at the end of the day, what we understand about how disasters work and their complexity and self-organizing systems, uh, I'm not convinced that the 72-hour kit actually saves lives, um, especially in a um, resource-rich environment. If you look at even the history of the 72-hour kit, I mean, the number, uh, there's about 10 different theories we're able to find online about where the 72-hour number came from. You know, Some people say that that's how long it takes the federal government quote-unquote, to respond. Other people uh, say 72 hours is uh, how long you need, you know, drinking water for. I mean, there's all these different uh, theories. I don't think there's a lot of science behind this number. It's just convenient. And it's even debatable. Uh, There's lots of resources and even newspaper articles and and certain jurisdictions that are promoting 96-hour or two-week kits. So why 72 hours opposed to any other uh, number? I think uh, even looking at the uh, list of what's included in kits. One, one study found 71 different recommended lists on various uh, uh, NGOs and government websites of what your kit should contain. Um, I mean, I think there's just not a lot of evidence here, and it's a lot of expert conjecture.
2: Josh, final question for you. If not a 72-hour kit, then what is a more effective approach to preparedness?
1: I think that's a great question. And If we do uh, a scan and look at other uh, jurisdictions, I mentioned uh, the one study earlier which was a systematic review done by Pickering and O'Sullivan and Pilas uh, just in 2018, they reviewed five different uh, countries, uh, Canada, the UK, um, the US and others, and and looked at uh, what messaging they were given in terms of uh, public safety and resilience. And the one I thought was most interesting was actually the Scottish program. And it's through a program called Ready Scotland, where they've... uh are trying to meet their Sendai and disaster risk reduction obligations uh, by empowering resiliency. And they have taken the complete opposite approach and moved far away from the 72-hour kit model. And instead, they have the four E's, engagement, education, empowerment, and encouragement. And what they are, are doing is pushing people to take a critical look of their individualized risk profile and actually understanding what specific risks they face as an individual and uh, then developing strategies to actually thoughtfully um, be able to to manage and be more resilient. This includes things like increased uh, social engagement and social networking, um, increased uh, uh, ability for lower uh, SES and uh, uh, less connected individuals to join those networks. Um, So, for example, one of the messaging uh, campaigns included... um, people identifying high-risk neighbors in their community and everybody should have a list of three people that they will personally attempt to check up on in a disaster. Um, so things like that I think are much more uh, useful um, and then if you, you know can look at your specific risk profile you may identify for example you're in an area that you may be asked to evacuate due to a wildfire so then for you it's important to always have at least half a tank of fuel in your car uh, so you're not uh, going to break down on the side of the road and potentially impede other people's evacuation. I think it's interesting that um, some authors, uh, uh, for example, Ozdevsky in 2018 in pre-hospital disaster medicine, uh, wrote about the impracticality of uh, disaster kits. And to me, it kind of implied that some people might even take a false sense of... uh, Reassurance from having these home kits. You know, you followed an official government checklist that says you're supposed to be safe, and you have this big bulky kit now with you know several days of supplies and blankets and all these different things. Uh, why would you evacuate? You know, you're, you're uh, maybe more likely to uh, to ignore uh, safety messaging that calls for evacuation because you've got this you know 72-hour emergency kit which is supposed to protect you. So I I think we're not even sure that you know, this potentially doesn't cause harm sometimes, which uh, I think would be a very uh, important thing for us to find out.
2: Grayson, your rebuttal starts now.
0: So Josh, your point is well taken. There's lots of different things people can do to prepare, but this is not an either-or debate. The debate is if 72-hour kids are effective at, you know, as part of a more holistic preparedness approach. 72-hour kits are used across Canada, from the, the federal government down to the provincial governments and territorial governments, all the way down to municipalities. All you have to do is look up 72-hour kits. It is by far the most ubiquitous preparedness campaign that is out there. It has gained a ton of traction. It has started the conversation. And yes, it's not the only thing that can be done to prepare, but having a 72-hour kit is proof that a lot of those other preparedness initiatives have taken place. You wouldn't really have a 72-hour kit unless you have had that conversation, looked into what you needed, done your own little risk assessment, and then packed it. Now, the last thing I'd like to mention is your discussion on the frameworked approach to discussing your risks and understanding your own vulnerabilities. Frameworks are great, frameworks are important, but you can't eat a framework. While your preparedness kit might be full of paper, I'm gonna continue to put bottled water and extra food in mine.
2: Grayson, are you ready for your last question? I'm ready. How do kits save lives?
0: Great question. The primary focus of any disaster manager any disaster management organization or any emergency response is life safety therefore the primary preparedness initiatives have to be based on the basics of supporting life emergency preparedness kits have food water clothing contact lists and a couple of uh, creature comforts to get you going for 72 hours. That is the purpose. They fill their purpose perfectly, and it's the life safety that they're focused at. Everything else is just pie in the sky. All of the other preparedness initiatives are nice-to-haves, long-term community resilience initiatives that are important, but they don't save lives. They improve recovery times. If you want to save a life, pack a kit.
2: Josh, any final comments?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing here is to take a a pragmatic approach. As I mentioned, I I think 72-hour kits are a form of planning theatre because the reality is for the vast majority of Canadians, if you were to do a survey right now, most people have enough food in their pantry uh, to survive for the next foreseeable few days. Most people have enough immediate supplies in their vicinity that they're going to uh, you know, not uh, starve or uh, you know have a Maslow's hierarchy crisis. <laughs> and it, for the very rare situations where there may be a true relative scarcity, uh, we're lucky enough that we live in a resource-rich um, country. And uh, we've seen time and time again that the actual response time uh, to get critical um, supplies is much shorter than than advertised. If you look at the lists that exist for what we're telling people right now, the current messaging that we're repeating over in pamphlets and social media campaigns and spending millions of dollars in advertising to get people to do, I'd like to share some of the, the things on those lists which you can find right now on provincial emergency management websites in this country. Uh, some of the things I'm being told this emergency preparedness this week that I should have in my 72-hour kit include traveler's checks, Spare change for pay phones <laughs> signal flares flint <laughs> if i can if i 'm going to be in a disaster situation where my life depends on having a a spare piece of flint, um, I think we've got uh, you know bigger response priorities so at the end of the day that these are not evidence based they 're outdated, and I think we can do uh, we can do much better uh, importantly some of the the other uh, common items that you see include things like medications. Now, I'm somebody that actually prescribes medications to people. I have never had anybody ask me for a prescription for extra medications for their disaster kit. And in most cases, it's probably something I'd be reluctant to prescribe because you're not supposed to handle medications like that. They have expiry dates. They uh, can be temperature sensitive. Often the doses uh, change. And uh, I think it's very impractical impractical to ask people to stockpile medications uh, and, you know, Uh, have them ready to go and and once a year update them. That's not a safe way to store medications. Um, So these aren't even practical things that we're asking people to do. And for the people that aren't going to have the 72 hour kits, uh, those are the ones we're worried about. So the people most vulnerable are the ones who are likely not going to be following these recommendations anyways. So I think uh, at the end of the day it's time for us to update our uh, messaging and start trying to actually follow the disaster science.
2: Thank you for your comments, debaters. It's now all down to the final arguments. Josh, you have one final chance to convince us that the cat's out of the bag and that 72-hour kits are just dead weight. Go.
1: As I mentioned, I think 72-hour kits are a form of planning theatre. There's no evidence to actually support that they're helpful in terms of Uh, saving lives. I think the uh, take-home message is that we live in a resource-rich country. Most people have enough supplies in their pantries right now that a 72-hour kit is not going to make that much of an immediate uh, difference. And there's other more important messages that uh, are evidence-based, like keeping your car full of at least half a tank of gas at all times, that I think are going to make a much larger impact.
2: Grayson, your turn. You're arguing that one of the key contents of every 72-hour kit is preparedness. Your closing argument, please.
0: Thank you very much. 72-hour preparedness kits are a direct reflection of capacity. They are a direct reflection of preparedness, and they are a direct reflection of the government's responsibility to its people. The 72-hour kit is so much more than a bottle of water and an extra granola bar. It is a promise to the people of Canada that the resources will be there as long as you can take care of yourself for 72 hours. They are the only definitive metric that we have to measure preparedness, and they are a great way to start a preparedness conversation. Thank you. This debate
2: is over. Well, there were some good arguments there for sure, but it's time to pack it in and select a winner. And the winner is, It's a tie.
0: (laughs) That's right. Uh, As always, we're we're here to explore the issues, not uh, decide on it. But there's actually one more part of the debate that we're incorporating, and it's called the traitor round. Uh, It's a chance to switch sides and stab, um, I guess, yourself in the back. So Josh, uh, do you have any actual arguments that I kind of missed in <laughs> in this debate?
1: Yeah, so I think the, the only um, thing I would say in terms of arguing in favor of the 72-hour kit is just like the emergency plan, it's often the process, not the actual product that uh, has the value. So I mean, I do think that there very likely uh, is a benefit to having people um, get together and if they're sitting down to decide what to put in their emergency uh, kit, then maybe they're also having a a conversation about, you know, other important uh, risk personalization things. Um, Maybe that's less so if you're buying uh, one of those kits off the shelf, I don't know. But uh, uh, I think, you know, maybe the process is more important.
0: Yeah, and I, I really connected with a lot of your arguments. Uh, I'd like to expand on one of them, and that's the kind of downloading of responsibility onto uh, vulnerable citizens for their own preparedness. It's sort of that drag yourself up by your bootstrings thing, and we know that's just that's impossible. That's, that's against physics, and it's also against uh, vulnerability um, analysis. It, I think the 72-hour kit initiative is important, but it really ignores what we know about vulnerabilities. It is not an effective strategy to target the most vulnerable in our population. And if you're not targeting the most vulnerable, then then what are you doing as a disaster manager?
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, just to close things out, uh, these are the questions that we should be asking ourselves, and it's important to have these debates. Um, And, uh, you know, whether you engage them uh, on social media or just uh, amongst your fellow uh, planning colleagues, I think it's important for us to critically analyze everything we do, including, especially when it comes to to public safety uh, messaging and the public health messages that we're giving. So, um, yeah, it's important to follow the evidence, but... uh, Certainly, there's uh, not always going to be a randomized control trial to back up everything we do. I like to joke often that there's no uh, good evidence that parachutes work, but you'll never have a a randomized control trial proving that. But, you know, at some point you have to use common sense.
2: One final question for both of you. Do you, as an emergency manager, have a 72-hour kit?
1: I, I personally do. I have uh, a 72 hour kit. I do have a, a go bag as well. And uh, I've over the years made sure that uh, all of my family also have 72 hour kits. So I am currently drinking from the Kool Aid. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm a little bit the same way. I have been giving this some thought over Emergency Preparedness Week here. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm very well prepared to be a responder. I don't know if I'm well set up to be impacted you know, I haven't really given any consideration to that scenario where I am too impacted to be a responder. Uh, so I've very much only prepared for run, one role uh, and not the other. So it was it was a good conversation today to even get me thinking about how I prepare and the context that I'm preparing in.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, always considering our personal preparedness is really important. We can't help others until we make sure our own um, needs are met and our families are looked after. So as you know, a fellow emergency manager, I think we should definitely take stock of our personal preparedness. Um, overall, I think, if nothing else, these sort of debates are really helpful and they can potentially dramatically change how we study preparedness. You have to think of Things through sometimes the uh, devil's advocate lens, and I think not just accept, uh, you know, messages and, and emergency management myths as dogma. Um, and it's a really important part of our practice as we uh, advance as a, a profession is to critically analyze the things we do.
0: And just before we go, I'd like to take a moment to mention the Alberta Podcast Network, which Epic Podcast is a part of. The APN is a community of creative, collaborative, and local podcasts and podcasters which help support the wonderful world of podcasts. You should absolutely check them out at albertapodcastnetwork.com, and I'm sure there's a podcast there for you.
1: We should also mention that this episode is sponsored in part by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays local. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Learn more at parkpower.ca.
0: And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A huge thanks to Adriana Lebidovich for moderating this epic debate and preventing unnecessary bloodshed. And Josh, uh, still friends? Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> epic friends. Okay. Um, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are of the debate. So if you'd like to get in touch, uh, email us at team at epicpodcast.ca or send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast, or visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. And I think this will be a great debate to have on Twitter. So we're going to try and ignite that fire right now. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, epic podcasts are designed as a
0: supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily
1: represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant
0: Canadian.